Well, good to see you folks this uh, Lord's Day morning. And um, obviously, there's no notes today. Um, we'll, we'll have notes next week and kind of be back into a little bit more of a normative way of how we're working through the, the confession. But um, just to begin, I, I would encourage you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. I just want to read one verse that kind of is going to move our mind in a direction we want to pursue this morning. So Isaiah chapter 46, still under this overall rubric of the decrees of God, but Isaiah chapter 46 and then verse 10. Isaiah uh, 46 and verse 10. And we'll, we'll come back to this verse to some extent. But Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your many, many kindnesses to us and thank you that we can begin this day um, fellowshipping together. We thank you. It's the first day of the week, and we're reminded of the glory and the power of the resurrection. And we just thank you so much that we can assemble together as a body of believers. And we, we thank you so much for the common, eternal, glorious salvation that we have in your Son. And, and Lord, this morning, I, I would pray for the uh, the help of your Holy Spirit, just to uh, convey thy holy word in a way that is honoring to thee and in a way that is instructive to our minds and to our thinking, especially as we just think about life. I, I pray it would be helpful to us as uh, governing our, our, our minds and, and helping us to understand how to, how to view reality through the authority of your holy revelation. So I, I pray it would be for your glory and, and, and helpful to our hearts and to our minds and so we commit this time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our, our studies here in uh, the third chapter of London Baptist Confession of Faith of God's decree, and uh, we, we've noted that uh, the decrees of God are they're very closely related to the concept of the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, uh, but they particularly emphasize that God is a planning God and a purposeful God. Um, and just to kind of just a, a quick review, and then we'll kind of make a little bit of progress here. But uh, Grudem's definition, I think, was helpful of God's decrees, the eternal plans of God, where, whereby before the creation of the world, He determined to bring about everything that happens. So it emphasizes two things: number one, God is a planning God, and number two, His plans are, are comprehensive; they're all inclusive. And just to the, the text that we have uh, just considered, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We, we see at least two things here that are uh, germane to our discussion. His purpose will be established. That emphasizes the fact that he's a planning God. He's a purposeful God. And then secondly, he will accomplish all of his good pleasure uh, this through his ongoing providential involvement in the world. Uh, the two questions from the Catechism, I think, are they're succinct and informative. What are the decrees of God? Uh, they're His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And then secondly, how does God execute His decrees? And the answer is He executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. And then another text that we found to be very helpful, Ephesians 1.11 also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. So it's similar um, to Psalm, excuse me, to Isaiah 46.10, where you have this aspect of a purposeful or a planning God on the one hand, and also a God that works all things after the counsel of his own will. So we noted that the decrees of God have this comprehensive uh, dimension also. All, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then also, um, the glory of God is the final cause of all his decrees. The glory of God is the final cause of all his decrees. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, because the, the decrees of God are presented as being comprehensive, and because they include all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will, and because they include the, the smallest detail, um, they are presented as constituting an entire system that includes that excludes nothing. Um, that may, may lead to some concerns or objections in people's minds, and Robert Shaw responds to that in his work, and um, he puts it like this. Um, it has also been objected that if God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, human liberty is taken away. To this it has been commonly replied that it is sufficient to human liberty that a man acts without any constraint and according to his own free choice, that the divine decree is extrinsic or external to the human mind, and while it secures the futurition of events, it leaves rational agents to act as freely as if there had been no decree. This answer, it must be acknowledged, merely amounts to an assertion that, notwithstanding the decree of God, man retains his liberty of action. He says, we still wish to know how the divine preordination of the event is consistent with human liberty. How the, how the divine preordination of the event, how is that consistent with human liberty? Upon such a subject, he quotes another theologian who says, No man should be ashamed to acknowledge his ignorance. We're not required to reconcile divine decrees and human liberty. It's enough to know that God has decreed all things which come to pass, and that men are answerable, answerable in their actions. Uh, of both these truths we are assured by the scripture, and the latter is confirmed by the testimony of conscience. We feel that although not independent upon God, we are free, so that we excuse ourselves when, when we have done our duty and accuse ourselves when we have neglected it. Sentiments of approbation and disapprobation, approval or disapproval, in reference to our own conduct or that of other men would have no existence in our minds if we believe that men are necessary agents. But the tie which connects the divine decrees and human liberty is invisible. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful wonderful for us. It is high. We cannot attain unto it. So my goal in our, in our time this morning is not to be um, philosophical, but because I, I believe the scriptures teach the decrees of God and that along with the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, they're really very comforting to the soul. The more you dig into this, the more it's encouraging to the heart and soul to know that in the, the smallest details of life, God is involved working out his purposes in our, our life. Um, now, I want to simply act, uh, interact from a biblical perspective with um, a couple of concerns and or objections. So the way I'm approaching things this morning is that there's two main headings, and I'm going to develop our thinking by looking at, at three sections of the Old Testament and doing a little bit more direct reading from the Old Testament than I normally do, so I hope that's not too tedious. But the goal is to deal with kind of two concerns and objections that relate to, if you have a, a robust uh, uh, view of the decrees of God, there's concerns or objections that arise. So I'm going to just deal with two of those this morning. And again, support that by looking at some scriptures from the Old Testament. The idea is that 
that's how our thinking is governed by going to the scriptures and allowing that to uh, inform our thinking. So number one is how does the do- how, how does the doctrine of God's decrees, especially its comprehensive nature, relate to what we would call fortuitous events? Fortuitous events. That's the kind of a word that if I haven't used it for a while, it's like, uh, what are you talking? What does that one mean? So here's a definition of fortuitous. It's occurring by chance, uh, without evident causal need or relation or without deliberate intention. A, a, a synonym would be accidental, uh, things which, which seem to be random, um, or at least they, they appear from our minds to be random. So two examples from the Old Testament that I think are, are helpful. Uh, the first one concerns Ahab, and turn if you would here to Second Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. And two sections of scripture. Uh, the first one concerns actually the death of Ahab, Second um, Chronicles uh, chapter 18, and um, in verses one through seven. Second Chronicles 18, verses one through seven. There's a, a lion, an alliance that is made between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And notice beginning in verse one, Second Chronicles chapter 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him. And the people who were with him induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? He said to him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the battle. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first, um, for the of the word of, for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel assembled the prophets, four hundred men, and said to them, Shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me. Uh, but always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So here we have this alliance between these two kings. Ahab, as you're probably aware, was one of the kings of the northern kingdom, and none of them are presented in a positive light. And he is like the worst of the kings of the northern kingdom. Um, and he's seeking help here from Jehoshaphat in, in going against Ramoth Gilead. And he's got 400 false prophets who are affirming his decision. And Jehoshaphat has enough spirituality to realize he wants to hear from a true prophet. And that turns out here to be Micaiah. And of course, Ahab does not like Micaiah. He hates him because he never prophesies good things about him. And then in verses 8 through 11, we have Ahab's false prophets. And there's, there's an assurance here of victory. Notice verses 8 through 11. And the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, Imla's son. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes. They were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Zedekiah, the son of Chenida, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead, succeed, for the Lord will give it into the, into the hand of the king. So here we, we have the, these false prophets, prophets assuring victory. Well, then in verses 12 through 13, Micaiah is brought before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Verses 12 and 13. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, 
what my God says, that will I speak. So the basic idea, he's telling Micaiah, look, we have unanimity here among all the prophets. Don't rock the boat. But we see what kind of a, of a man that Micaiah is here. He's only going to say what God told him to say. Then in verses 14 and 15, um, it says, when he came to the king, um, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead? This is, this is Ahab. Uh, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? He said, go up and succeed, for they will be given into your hand. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Um, so Micaiah is using sarcasm here, and Ahab realizes that. So in verse 16, he realizes, he, excuse me, he reveals what he saw. Micaiah reveals what he saw. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep who have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then verse 7 is Ahab's reaction to this. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did not I tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? So this is kind of like I told you so. Then verses 18 to 22, now come the words of Micaiah, the true prophet. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and, uh, and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? He said, I'll, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Of course, Zedekiah didn't take that too well. So verse 23, Zedekiah, the son of Chenina, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? So in verses 23 and 27, you have reaction to Micaiah's words, first from Zedekiah and then from Micaiah. So we saw the reaction of Zedekiah. Then verse 24, Micaiah uh, said, Behold, you will see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this man in prison, feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Now notice verse 27. Micaiah said, if you return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen, all you people. Now then verses 28 to 34, now we have the battle. So the king of Israel, verse 28, the king of Israel, that's um, uh, Ahab, the king of Israel said, it's the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you will put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the captains of his chariots saying, do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone, that is Ahab. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. Verse 32, when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now notice verse 33. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until the evening, and at sunset he died. So in verses 28 to 34, uh, we have the battle, and verse 33 is helpful. It indicates that Ahab died in the battle because it was determined 
by God, that by the mouth of the prophet, that he would die. However, the man who killed him um, is said to have has shot at, at random or, or by chance. So Ahab had disguised himself, and, and this man had the idea, had no idea that he was aiming at the king. So all, all I'm saying here, it helps us to see how, how the doctrine of God's decree relates to fortuitous events or random events. Uh, Ahab died because God determined that he would die, but to the eye of the onlooker, it appeared, well, this was just random. This was just an accident. So this is example number one or illustration number one that helps us to see this is a lens for how you and I are to view life. We see the providence of God. We see the, the doctrine here of the decrees of God, the ordination of God on the one hand, and then the, the, this act that is fortuitous on the other or appears to be just by chance. Then there's a second example in, your, in 2 Chronicles, if you turn ahead a little bit to chapter 34, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And we, and we go here from, um, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, from the death of a bad guy to the death of a good guy. Second um, Chronicles chapter 34, it's about um, Josiah, and he's presented in a, one of the kings of the southern kingdom. He's presented in a, a positive light. He's a thorough reformer, radically different from Ahab. Um, in, the, in the process of reform, he comes across the book of the law, or the book of the law is found. And that's in verses 14 to 16. Second Chronicles chapter 34 verses 14 to 16, and here the book of the law is found. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law, the Lord given by, of the law, excuse me, of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Um, then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, everything that was entrusted to your servants to, excuse me, entrusted to your servants, they are doing. Um, and the words are read to Josiah, and he's profoundly affected by this. Notice verse 19. It says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then verse 21, go inquire. This is Josiah's response. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because of our fathers. They have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. And then verses 28 to, uh, to verses 23 to 28 is hold Holda the prophetess. She brings out the significance of this. This is beginning in verse 23. Um, she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. But, verse 26, But to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Then verse 28, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. 
So because Josiah was in a different class, because he has a tender heart, the, the word of the Lord is, I'm going to take you home. And so you're not going to have to see the fall of Jerusalem. You're not going to have to see that. So that, that's the point that is, that is, is brought out here. Um, and then if, in verses um, 20 to 24, we ask, well, how is this going to happen? How is the Lord going to bring him home? Verses 20 to 24 of the next chapter record the battle, and they reveal, reveal how this happened. Notice verse 20. This is in chapter 35. After all this, when Josiah had set uh, the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Car- excuse me, Carchemish, uh, on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God, who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. However, Josiah, verse 22, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. There's some debate about this, but... Um, the language here suggests that Josiah is being a bit obstinate, and actually he should have listened to him, but he does not do that. So verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah and said to the servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers, all Judah and Jerusalem, mourned for Josiah. So Josiah, he disguises himself. He's clearly not expecting to die, or at least it suggests he's not expecting to die. And again, there's, there's archers that shoot him not knowing who he was. And so from the perspective of many, he, he's killed at random. He's killed by chance in this battle. But we see here that this fortuitous event was really carried out because God determined that he would die at this particular point in time. So those at least, I think, are a couple of examples that I hope you find helpful and kind of view those as a lens through which to view view life. On the one hand, we have God accomplishing his purposes. On the other hand, we have events that here to, appear to be random, appear to be by chance. A second main heading um, is this. Um, and turn, if you would, for this one to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Um, and a, a second concern or objection to the doctrine of God's decrees, um, it, was, it will undermine human liberty uh, and circumvent free choice. If this is true, it's going to undermine human liberty and circumvent free choice if the doctrine of God's decrees is true. If the scriptures still make clear that men are, are free to act, to think, to plan, uh, human liberty is not taken away uh, in spite of the decrees of God. And a helpful example here is from 2 Samuel chapter 15. And um, let me see, I don't, I'm trying to see if anybody's keeling over yet. I, um, I think got one, one more, one more. This is the last lap, this is the third lap here, okay? So, um, okay, 2 Samuel chapter 15. A helpful example here is Absalom. So Absalom is kind of the, the main character, so to speak, here. Not the only one, but 2 Samuel chapter 15. In verses 1 through 12, um, Absalom's conspiracy, we read about his conspiracy to uh, replace his father, uh, David, as king. So 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verses 1 through 12. Then Samuel said to Saul, Lord sent to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Um, 
That was, that's really a good one, but that's First Samuel chapter 15. But that, that's good too. So you can read that at your leisure. Okay. Second Samuel chapter 15. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way to, uh, way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king of judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause would come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. On this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed give me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the king. The king said, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilah, while he was offering sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Uh, then in chapter, um, so and notice here, this is kind of, this is important. Notice in verse 12, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, who was David's counselor. Then in chapter 15 and verse 13 through, I'm not going to read all this, through chapter 16 and verse 14, this, this records David fleeing from Jerusalem and references made to people that he met, that he um, met along the way. And then and notice in verse 31 of chapter 15, verse 31 of chapter 15. Now someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. So he's informed here that Ahithophel has defected. His prayer is make his counsel foolishness. In verses 32 to 34, it happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat turned and dust on his head. David said to him, if you pass over with me, you will be a burden to me. And David says to him, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. So David prays that his counsel would be thwarted. Now he strategizes that his counsel would be thwarted. He has a spy, so to speak, sent in there in order to effect that end. So he's strategizing for this to happen. Then in verse 37, um, Hushai uh, goes into Jerusalem. David's friend came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Excuse me. And Absalom came into Jerusalem. Then in verse 15 of chapter 16, if you drop down to verse 15 of chapter 16, 
Um, Hushai convinces Absalom that it's okay for him to be here. I mean, he's suspicious, as you can understand. So he has to convince him it's okay for him to be there. So verse 15, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel entered Jerusalem and hit the fellow with him. And it came about when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Then Hushai said to Absalom, no. For whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. You're the king, I'm going to go with you. Besides, um, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So I will, I will excuse me, so I will be in your presence. Then, and then verses 22, verse 4, we have um, Ahithophel's advice. So David is gone. What should they do? And so Hithophel gives his advice to Absalom here, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 16. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Um, Then in in chapter, uh, let's see, then we'll just kind of keep going here in verse 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may rise and pursue David. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. Uh, The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of of Israel. So there's Ahithophel's advice, and it pleases them all. Now in verse 5 and following, Hushai gives his advice, which is different from the advice that was just uh, received from Ahithophel. So notice here, beginning in verse 5, Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite, this is David's guy, and, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus, Shall we carry out this plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare, and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of excuse me in one of the caves or in another place and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom and even the one who is valiant whose heart is like the heart of a lion will completely lose heart for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba as a sand that is by the sea in abundance and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and of all the men who are with him, not, not even one shall be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will drag it into the valley until not even... A small stone is found there. Notice verse 14. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? 
for the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. So what do we, what do we have going on here? You're still here. Um, we, we have David running for his life. We have one of his chief counselors who's defected. Um, and, and David knows that this man is a great strategist. And so now he's with the opposing force. So David prays that he's going to thwart his counsel. And not only that, he, he arranges to have Hushai the archite go there and also to, th to thwart his counsel. So we see Absalom, is, he's not a robot here. He, he, he's got human liberty, and that's not taken away. He, he's listening, he is thinking, he, he's determining. But the accent here is that the, 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 uh, the counsel of Ahithophel is thwarted because God determined that it would be thwarted. So you, you've got this, this um, activity of God, of God going on here, but you also have human liberty. David is strategizing, Absalom is strategizing, everybody's still working things out, so it doesn't circumvent human liberty. So I, this is just another helpful passage, I think, the more you consider it, that it helps us to realize God is still sovereign, he's still working out his purposes, but man is still free to choose, and he does choose, and he does strategize, and he does try to, to think things through in this respect. And just kind of a... Uh, a final note, um, and this is under the category of, um, for whatever it's worth, uh, in chapter 23, you don't need to turn there, but it's a list of um, David's mighty men, okay? Uh, Uriah the Hittite was one of his mighty men, and there's a man by the name of Eliam. He's one of his mighty men. This is in um, chapter 23, I think verse 34, and um, his father is Ahithophel. So you have Ahithophel, and his son is Eliam. Eliam is only mentioned one other time in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 3. He had a daughter by the name of Bathsheba. You with me here? So you got, you got Ahithophel, his son Eliam, and a daughter Bathsheba. And then you're asking the question, I know you are, why did Ahithophel defect? I mean, what motive did he have? Um, I'm not saying this is in the Bible. There's a little bit of speculation here. But... He is, he, he, the man of God committed adultery with his daughter and had her husband murdered. So what motive would he have to defect and, and go with the, with the opposing force? So I bring that to your attention to say, one, that may not be true. <laughs> I mean, that's a little, little bit of speculation there. But if it is, it just underscores the, po the point that we are making. You have all this human activity as humans would act. You have everybody acting and thinking through things, but God still accomplishing his purposes. So that's just one to kind of think about as you have opportunity to do so. Anyway, let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we do not serve a God who is not in charge. We do not serve a God who is not working all things after the counsel of your own will. We praise you and thank you that you do. We, we thank you that you have given us this um, revelation of truth to help our, our own thinking process. So I, I pray that you would help us increasingly uh, to be people who start with Holy Scripture and let that um, govern how we view reality and how we view life. And I pray our time together this morning would serve those ends. And pray also that our, our fellowship uh, would be precious and sweet and would, uh, we would uh, worship you uh, together this day in spirit and in truth that you might be pleased to impress upon our souls something of the glory and the greatness of your being. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.